am your father. This is, this is a Brandon Colby Jacobs from Facebook exclusive. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Touche, my nigga. Touche. Yo, what it do, what it is, man. It's your boy, Brandon Kobe Jacobs, and you are listening to the Established 1984 Podcast, man. We are in episode 24, man, and I have somebody on the podcast who I really and truly respect, somebody that I think that, you know, if you're a music person, if you're a person interested in being an engineer, um, anything related to sound and the creative process of developing music, this is somebody that you're wanna, that you're going to want to get with. This man has been an integral part of the Jacksonville Duval County scene as it relates to hip-hop music, R&B as well. Um, pretty much, if you're of any significance in the city of Jacksonville, he probably has produced a record for you. He's probably been an engineer for you. Or you've probably done something out of his studio. Uh, he is a legendary producer. Uh, he is a, an amazing human being. And I'm so excited to talk to him, talk about his story, and, and just kind of get his point of view. I have my good friend Deshaun Quillon Waters on the line. How are you doing, Sean? What's happening, bro? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, man. I thought, I thought you were talking about somebody else at first. <laughs> <laughs> nah, man. This is all for you, bro. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, I, I tell everybody, man. We have some we have some really influential people, and that's what I try to do as far as the podcast is concerned. Is just get people on the podcast that I really feel like are legitimate influencers, people who have made a, a significant impact in our industry. And, and you are definitely one of those people, man. And I mean, obviously, like I don't know how much of my podcast you had the opportunity to listen to, but like I've had people like Ivory on the podcast, Bird. I've had Shout Out on the podcast. So it's only Cash, White Boy. No, I haven't had Cash on the podcast. By the way, feel free to call Joey and tell him Brandon is looking for him to get him on the podcast because because he knows I know he knows I'm looking for him. So shout out. So I mean, Young Cash, if you're listening, man, trying to get you on the podcast. What's up, man? You one of the first people I called, but. You know, we want to we get started and we want to focus on your story. So, why don't you start off by telling everybody kind of where you're from? Because I'm not sure if you... Are you from Jacksonville or did you come from somewhere else? Born and raised in Duval County, man. Born and raised um, in Duval County. What side of town? How, you know, where did well, you grow up? That kind of ironically, stuff. Ironically, I'm from Grand Park. I was born off Grove Street, the weed hole on uh, <laughs> off Kings Road. I was born right behind Patrick Pride. Old school people know what that is. Oh, wow. I had no so, idea. You know, yeah, my parents moved over into Arlington when I was like six or seven years old. Okay. Um, and we did the whole first black thing. We were like the second black couple to move into Four Seasons Apartments right off Arlington Expressway. I was the first black student at Arlington Kindergarten. Right. Right there where, uh, what's that, where the Crystals used to be on university. Yep, yep. <laughs> so I was the first black student there and, you know, just kind of migrated from the whole north side black thing to being on the south side and being some of the first black people to migrate to the south side in the early 70s it's crazy because a lot of people i think aren't aware and shout out and i talked about this a little bit on his podcast they aren't aware of how divided jacksonville at one point was and it's kind of socio-economical from the standpoint that 
really though it wasn't like they told they told black folks oh you can't live on this side of town by this side I'm referring to the south side what what it was was is you have these tolls up and in uh, you know in minority families where you know money is tight and things like that most of us are already on the north side already out these yeah. things like that it makes it difficult yeah. because there is no Danes Point Bridge at this time so you got to pay right. these tolls in order to get to the other side of the bridge that made it challenging so if you ended up living over on that side you pretty much stayed over there or if you were on the north side or the east side, you pretty much stayed there. And the, the irony of that is, is that in early Jacksonville history, when downtown, this was before the Jacksonville fires took place downtown, mm-hmm. black people were forced to the south side. Oh, really? Yeah, um, my family has deep heritage in the Emerson and... Um, Phillips Highway area, the tree over there and stuff, okay. you know. And I'm, I'm not telling you what I heard. I'm telling you what there are black people that still live over there. Like, as a matter of fact, right now they're doing all kind of highway development right there at the end of Phillips Highway going up onto 95. Right. And that was all black people, man. And we were forced to this side because downtown was booming. That was considered white area. Right. But we, Springfield and, and all of that. Right. Gotcha. Right. So when the fire took place, they started moving to the south side. They started migrating further down into what is the area? Avalon and mm-hmm. San Marco and that's where it now so like now if you really pay attention to Jacksonville, everything's going south. Right. If you're if you're in St. Augustine or Nocatee or something like that, that's where the money is. Right. The north side is left dry. Right. <laughs> so And it's just it's unfortunate because the thing about it is is and this is something that I've always I've had tons of conversations with, with other people who I guess kind of try to consider themselves intellectuals. I mean, we fought so hard to try to get access to the South Side and we thought that everything was better on that side of town. And in doing so, as soon as they let those tolls down, I mean, what ended up happening? We end up moving to Arlington. Arlington pretty much gets ransacked. But in turn, what ends up happening to our community, which was which was booming in its own unique way from the standpoint of having kind of, you know, black-owned businesses. You had Golf Fair and you had Gateway and you had all of that kind of stuff. Um, those things start to deteriorate, and before you know it, it, it's pretty much all gone. I mean, I come home now, and that stuff is destitute. But I went over there when I was growing up, like, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, when my parents were getting me school clothes and stuff, that's where we went, you know? So here's the thing. When you talk about Regency Mall, and you talk about malls of that type, indoor malls, Mm -hmm. people that pay rent in indoor malls, they split the bill. So if the light bill for the overall mall is one price and there's 20 people in the mall, it's split. It's not what electricity you use or what water you use. It's what everybody used and we split. Right. So the reason that places like Gate Parkway and the town center work is because it's all outdoors. Your electricity is your electricity. Your water is your water. You pay your bill. Right. And so even even when we talk about the gentrification of North versus South, even when you look at the businesses that they have over on the North side at the mall out there, mm-hmm. the main street, man, that, River that's City Marketplace, joke. yeah. Yeah, that's a joke. So you got a crack barrel. So you got a, a, a you know, certain restaurants or whatever. So you got, but you know, it really ain't booming until you got your Chick-fil-A's, until you got, you know, P.F. Uh, Chang's, or right. major restaurants, uh, cheesecake factories, and we settle for the minimum. And right. so when you settle for the minimum, it's just like, like them putting up a Publix in Gateway. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the minimum. What else happens around that? Nothing. Yep. So now you got so now you got a token and you complain because the real building, the real process is taking place further south. Right. It's it's really a shame, man. I but it's just it's just so crazy that that really just you mentioning that just kind of sparked this little bit of a conversation. So you grow up on you essentially, you know, you, where you're born is where you're born, but you end up moving over to the south side. You kind of grow up over there. Uh, what's life like growing up for you? And obviously, the big question is going to be: You're so ingrained in music. Is that something that was there early on, or is it something that grew as you became a teenager and into adulthood? So here's how it goes. Ironically, um, right after my parents moved over into Arlington, um, my dad was already heavy into music and DJing, and he meets Mr. Charles Scantling. Him and Charles Scantling are actually doing uh, after porn because there were no black clubs at the time. Can you share they who were- Charles Scantling is for those who don't know? Charles Scantling is the owner of Jazz Coles, uh Nightclub, the famous Jazz Coles of Jacksonville, Florida, one of the first black majorly, um, you know, long lasting black businesses in Jacksonville. Okay. And that whole situation started because him and my dad were actually DJing at the clubhouse and having get togethers at the clubhouse in the apartments that we lived in. Because people like Teddy Pendergrass would come through or the OJs and there was no club with the after party. They were actually coming to the clubhouse on the south side. And so that's where Charles and my dad, well, more or less Charles, he came up with the idea for opening a club in Jazz Coast. But it started off as just a, oh, a necessity for black people to have their own entertainment. Right. So, you know, later on, Charles opens Jazzco and that becomes a major thing. Yeah. And I have the bug. You know, I got my dad is taking me to the radio station. I'm getting um, signed autographed albums from uh, Ray Parker Jr. Radio from, uh, you know, the OJs, like I said, or, or Teddy Pendergrass. You know, I, I was engulfed in, like, I think... My mom said one of the first songs I was singing at age five or six was Earth, Wind, and Fire, The Reasons, you know, the high pitch. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I've always had kind of an ear, and my dad kind of embellished that because he would buy me, like, bongos and drums. My uncle is a drummer. Right. And it just grew from there, you know, just like really not even playing an instrument, you know, learning formal keys or learning anything formal, just hearing good music right right, right, right. it wasn't until i got to um sixth or seventh grade that i decided to play an instrument and ironically the first instrument i wanted to play was a trumpet Mm -hmm. i did that i went to george washington carver this was when they were shipping kids from the south side to the north side for school y'all don't know about them days (laughs) (laughs) yes i went to george washington carver i kind of went to school all over the city but um from there, after the first year of trumpet, I hated it. Um, so I hard, it's a hard instrument. Mom, it's a hard yeah, instrument. Yeah, I begged my mom to uh, let me play drums. And the following year, my seventh grade year, I went to Douglas Anderson. Douglas Anderson at the time was a seventh grade center. It was not the School of the Arts. Oh, okay. And uh, my instructor there, who is still the recording instructor and the drum instructor at School of the Arts, Thomas Haller, was my first 
teacher. And I mean, he taught us everything from playing the drum set. You know, of course, we start off on snare drum, then we get on the full set, orchestra instruments, bells, xylophone, all of that type of stuff. So that's when I started picking up, um, you know, keys. Right. After there, my uh, eighth grade year, I went to Landon Junior High. Um, ironically, my teacher over there was Ace Martin. Ace Martin was, or probably still is, the overall band director at the School of Arts right now. Right. I ended up being in the jazz band over there, and we actually recorded our first demo. So you can imagine, I'm like <laughs> 13, 14 years old going into the studio. We actually went to Warehouse Studios over off Emerson and recorded a demo. So you can imagine like 15 little kids, you know, black kids, white kids, you know, all playing instruments, saxophone. We're playing like uh, satin doll, old jazz standards, you know what I'm saying? But right. we had like 15 piece band doing it. And so we put together these four or five songs about a year later. Um, <laughs> Ace Martin leaves, but he tells us that he sent the demo to California where they have this big jazz music convention. And we were voted the best junior high jazz band in the nation. <laughs> so That's all, right. told, all 15 of us flew over to California. And so, you know, my mind is blown at that point because... You know, I know who Miles Davis is and Dizzy Gillespie, but right. I get a chance to meet them wow. and rub elbows with them and know what they're, you know, Maynard Ferguson, Doc Severinsen, all of these people that are people that I'm meeting at that age. Mm -hmm. So now my thing is jazz and I'm learning keys. And shoot, pretty much from that point on, man, it's like my high went down because, you know, Ace had asked me to come to the School of the Arts. School of the Arts was just getting started. Right. It's kind of expensive. My mom is now single for three or four years at this point. Mm -hmm. Money's just not available for me to go. So I ended up um, going to Inglewood. Okay. <laughs> okay. Probably the worst place in the world to go to, <laughs> to harbor musical talent. So, what was Inglewood like in, I'm guessing, what is this, the late 80s, early 90s? late 80s uh, man it was crazy for me because um, you know every school that I went to up until that point was either completely black mm -hmm. you know where there was a couple of white people or majority white where you know you know so I get to Inglewood and I'm starting to understand oh there's Mexican people there's Spanish people there's Chinese mm -hmm. like there's yep. Yep. really culturally diverse Mm -hmm. group of kids right. and they're all bad though they're all <laughs> <laughs> oh so it was still the same way in the late 80s okay yeah <laughs> ain't shit changed you know what I'm saying this is this hodgepodge of delinquents but everybody's got talent you know like somebody's good at football or somebody's good at playing an instrument or somebody's good at even cooking up car stereos you know right so the cool thing about that was the culture and for me it was an absolute great time because that was the MTV age where black radio didn't really exist in Jacksonville and no, you know not yet. so now I'm, I'm really listening to you know Flock of Seagulls and the cars and the police and <laughs> nah, but I'm up on top of that I'm also building my palette for Duet's Jazz I'm listening to Chick Corea Spyro Gyra and 
you know, a lot of stuff like that and uh, knowing who Bob James is and, you know, foreplay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, that's pretty much, you know, graduating from Inglewood. You know, I took a lot of the skills that I learned as far as keys and I got my first keyboard and drum machine and now I'm, I'm not producing per se, I'm just filling my chops, learning how to play certain chords and how to figure out the notes and songs. Won a couple of uh, talent shows at Inglewood right. with uh, with the integrated group. There's a, a dude that, a white dude that swung on the song and I kind of did back up. We had a sax player and drummer and, you know, but it was everyone that was in the band. <laughs> right. So we created this little group and because we were so good and won, when the band would travel to other schools to promote kids to come to Inglewood, yeah. that little group would perform also. <laughs> like, <laughs> so not only would the concert band perform and the jazz band perform, our little hodgepodge group would perform. And so that, that was my first bug for, you know, being on stage. And right. from there, man, I, I graduated and wow. No, um, no, no interest in college or, or anything like that for you. Or absolutely, is this... absolutely. I was a, I was a, I was a drum captain in Inglewood for two years in a row. Okay. And uh, I don't know if you got to know a guy named DJ Eminem. Mm, no, doesn't ring a bell. Um, he goes by uh, DJ Jupiter. Okay. That's that's my homie, man. Um, we went to Inglewood together, and you know, he was the DJ, and I started writing i started rapping he used to dj at this club called limelight um on phillips highway and university i think it's called vibe now yeah you give it you giving all the all the old school names man i'm surprised yeah. you, i'm surprised you didn't start talking about the big <laughs> uh, so so me and him had a group called day one and ironically um our first demo that we recorded, we went to Ken Andre's at TWC Studios when he used to be off Century 21. Okay. Um, Ken Andre's is now my mentor. He's who I was, uh, was I guess you can say, inherited the studio from. Okay. <laughs> the building that I'm in right now, um, All Pro Studios. Uh, but that started off with me and Steve putting together beats on a drum machine, booking studio time, going to the studio, laying down the pre-programmed beats, me laying the raps, and then playing keyboard parts over it to make demos. So you were you, you did some rapping, too, along with everything else that you're doing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs> it's, funny because, it's funny because every now and then I'll hop on the song and lay a verse or something. And be, oh, I didn't know that you, you know, you could sing or that you rap. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's kind of hard to be a true producer and not be on the other side of the mic at some point, you know? Right, 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 100%, 100%. So, life is like this for you. What are you doing in your early 20s? Did you end up going to school at any point or did you say, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to attack this music thing and is that kind of what you were doing kind of in the early to mid 90s and things like that and are there any notable people that obviously our listeners might know or would be relevant to our listeners to know a part of Jacksonville lore that you were kind of interacting with in your infancy as you're developing um, into a, into a notable producer. Oh man. So um, let's see. How can I go about this? Well, um, 
in high school, being in band, our band, we called it a Dirty 30 because it was like <laughs> really like 30, 40 band members and like 10 drummers. Right. <laughs> so our drum line was the feature, though. The drum line killed it. Like I'm talking about we would battle against Paxson and Reigns and whoever, and we would hang with them. Mm-hmm. But once we got in the field, it was a wrap because <laughs> it just didn't have the numbers. It didn't have the effect. It didn't look the same. Plus, the band director was picking corny music. But right. um, as far as going to competitions and stuff like that, I was getting like I used to have this sash this belt with like all my medals on it and I had like state medals and local medals for superiors and all of this yep. good stuff me too me too um, on the on the classical music side yeah I've got yeah. you yeah so what uh what happened was we, we would go to like uh you know local competition here in Jacksonville if you received a superior there then you were invited to um regional in Gainesville mm-hmm and then if it if it capped off there and you got a superior, you would go to state in Tallahassee. Yep. So mm-hmm. for me, so for me, it kind of harbored my love hate relationship, which I hate Florida University of Florida, but I love Florida State because that was that was the pinnacle, you know, that was the thing you were trying to get to. Right. And so just walking on their field and performing and stuff was just like major. But uh, you know, from that point of of having superiors and doing this stuff with DJ Eminem and recording, man. Um, you know, I don't know if you know Karan Marsalis. No. <laughs> you know Karan from Big Band Theory. Oh, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Karan and there's a dude, uh, Kevin McCall. Yeah. They went to Inglewood after I graduated mm-hmm. and Steve knew them and they used to hang out at the club. Okay. So we put together a little group. They were my dancers. I was the MC. Steve was the DJ. So things really picked up. We did some major shows. Um, we were performing and going around town with people like uh, Nard Robinson from Talking Trees. Mm-hmm. Yep, I remember. <laughs> we, were working with, we were working with Tango. Okay. Jordan from Southern Dialect. And, um, you know, man it was some major things going on. I remember I entered a talent show in Atlanta one time, me and Tango and his brother Tim, Eminem, we did a show in Atlanta. It was a big talent show. My manager, um, Carolyn Murphy, kind of got me the gig. And I remember getting off the plane. (laughs) I had to be 21, 22, getting off the plane. She's like, we're going to your audition for this talent show right now. And I'm like, damn, can I check into it? She's like, no. <laughs> walk in this building, a three-story building. <clears throat> you know, it's like a skill center, but, you know, it's rooms for dancing and, you know, teaching or whatever. We go upstairs and I walk in this classroom and a dude is sitting behind a desk with a boom box on the desk. Mm-hmm. And so he's on the phone and he literally like, you know, he's like, you know, give me a tape. So I give him my beat or whatever to tape. He puts it in, he hits play. He's like, all right, let me see what you got. But he's still holding the phone, talking on the phone. So I'm like rapping and giving all this emotion, you know, trying to get this dude's attention. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing. So I jumped up on the table and started rapping in his face, you know. Right. And I guess that energy is what he liked. And that led us to go into the actual competition. Unfortunately, uh, it was a big night. The show was great. Goody Mob was there. TLC was there. Oh, wow. <laughs> was there. And 
that night we got we we were the third to last fourth to last group to perform killed it knew we had it in the bag the last artist to perform was this little kid from Tennessee Usher Raymond <laughs> lost the competition that was that, that that was a rough night to even <laughs> that ain't even that's not even yeah. fair <laughs> yeah, and I'm talking about this dude at that time man his voice was so mature and you know he looked like this little kid but his voice was like I think it was even more massive back then than it is now like if I when I listen to his first album <clears throat> I just see the potential that everyone saw in him Right. I, I still don't think that he uses his voice to his full potential, but you know that's me being a producer. Right. Right. So, but from there, man, um, I you know I, I went on tour, did some shows. Um, I don't know if you know DJ Thorough. Mm-hmm. You, he works for this is he works for this is fifty right now in New York. That okay. was my DJ. His name is Daryl Johnson. I know you probably heard of my cousin Eighty from Red Rock. Yes. <laughs> I brought 80 in the game when he was like 16 at the time I had to be like 23 mm-hmm. and wow man I remember the first show that we did um, we kind of begged Levi and Josh and them to put us on this Biggie show that they had at Carousel for his birthday for Biggie's birthday and, now, um, I gotta put you, I gotta pause you right there Levi Jordan yeah. A lot of people don't know him and don't recognize him. How influential is he at this point kind of in not maybe not so much music, but you know how music and clubs and all that kind of mixes together. How influential was he in the movement of kind of like urban culture at that point? Oh, man, he like had his finger on the pulse as far as doing shows and comedy shows and plays. That was the man. He was promoting everything from the Southeast. As a matter of fact, after we did that Biggie show, that's what made it feasible for us to go on tour and open up for Cash Money. Uh, We opened up for No Limit. Um, You know, we did various shows from Charlotte to Columbia, on down to Orlando, like we we were out for a while, and mind you, my cousin, eighty sixteen at this time, man, and you know he's sixteen seventeen doing shows, and like you know we would go to a hotel and check in, and buses would pull up with like you know juveniles face on a little wings, so this is Cash Money pulling up in their van, and like not their van, their tour bus with their faces on the side of the whole tour bus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Lil Wayne hops off and he's got on two Rolexes, a gold one and a platinum one. They're so big and he's so little, they're like rolling around his wrist. So you what year what is saying? this? Is this like 97? Wow. Or is he even yeah, yeah, 95, 90, more like 96, 97. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so he's almost a teenager because he and I are about the same age. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Now, I do have yeah. to ask you, because obviously you 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 exist in such a large period of time as far as Duval County music culture and things like that. And one of the most influential groups of the 90s, obviously, you know, I'm going to talk about the 69 Boys, Thrill the Player, all of those guys. Right. What, what were they moving like? Did you get any opportunities to interact with them? And if so, what was that like? Absolutely. Uh, 95 South's first album. Let's back up a little bit. <clears throat> so before I start... Well, after Day One breaks up, which is the group with me and uh, DJ Jupiter, Steve, uh, Karan, and Kevin, after that kind of falls off, <clears throat> um, 
me and Tango, we're doing our thing, and we start writing for a group at the time named Three Grand. Okay. Uh, while we're writing for Three Grand, um, how can I explain this? Captain Kurt's niece has a child from J. Ski McGowan, mm-hmm. Little J. Mm-hmm. Little J. Ski that we know at the time right now. Right. But before then, before he was born, 95 South, who was prior to that called the Chilldale Boys with the deal with the MCA Records mm-hmm. moved to Atlanta to pursue their dreams and long story short things didn't blow for them mm-hmm. they're living in a, in a one or two bedroom apartment four, five, six guys with a drum machine <laughs> and this is CC Lemonhead and Jay Ski and Mike Mike and the whole crew mm-hmm. Right. they're living in uh, an apartment but they can't put out any music because the label owns the name. Right. Well, uh, Jay's baby mama, which is also uh, Captain Kurt, who is Three Grand's father, it's his niece. She asked him to allow Jay and the group to come and record mm-hmm. to work on an album because, of course, you know, label situation was shot. Right. Long story short, they come in, they start laying down some beats. I'm working with uh, with Tango and also this dude named Axe who did a lot of production. Um, Tyrone Sullivan, he did a lot of production mm-hmm. for Three Grand at the time. And here they come, they take over the studio. They're working on this concept group. And what they basically did was because the deal had them locked in, they took their dancers, their little brothers, Carlos and AD, mm-hmm. made them the front men. Mm-hmm. Wrote all the songs, laid all the hooks, did all the production, and called it 95 South. Oh, wow. So okay. they produced the first 95 South album, and we're there. To the point where my girlfriend at the time, Doma and some of her friends, another group that I was producing at the time, you know, not really producing, more or less writing, because I hadn't, I hadn't picked up the instrument to say, oh, this is my sword, this is my weapon of choice to really make beats mm-hmm. but I again still had the ear right uh, on that first 95 South album um, they recorded the song whoop there it is the song blows up mm-hmm. on that same album is a song called that's life in the ghetto that's my girlfriend at the time Thelma and another girl named Tina singing on the hook which I wrote there's also a skit on there that says this is a test of the emergency based quad system and then there's this big boom boom for like a minute right mm-hmm that's me. <laughs> I said that. <laughs> so, Damn, you know, we're, we're really in the mix. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. we're in the mix of greatness. Like, always, that, that seems like my life's, <laughs> my life's theme, always on the verge of greatness. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I, I remember at the time, also, it was crazy because Jay was a great writer. Mike Mike and some of the other guys from Shield were kind of falling off. But this trilogy started to form, which was... Jay Ski, the mastermind, the hooks, the businessman, mm-hmm. CC on the beats, and then this new dude that I had known for years, but I didn't really know him, know him, Van Bryant, mm-hmm. thrill player. <laughs> he comes up, he's talking to them about writing, so he wrote "Whoop, there it is." Now, Hold on, wait, 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 stop. You're yeah, saying right. you're saying what now? Thrill the player wrote "Whoop, there it is." Yeah, yeah, he was he was a co-writer. 
on everything from 95 South, 69 Boys, Quad City DJs. That's all Van Bryant. <laughs> the words. Now, the, and that's what I'm trying to tell you, that the trilogy was J.C. McGowan, Hooks, Ideas, Business, mm-hmm. CC on the Beats, Lyrics, Van Bryant. Wow. So what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to express to you is that that trilogy carried through three or four groups. It wasn't just 95 South. It was 69 Boys, same situation. Matter of fact, I remember times being at the studio. Do you know Steve? Steve that used to promote, I think he was over, uh, he was over EWC for a while. Steve, Steve that's, a, that's a Q. Yeah, Steve Bellamy, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Steve, Steve came to Jay Ski one time with a concept group, and he, he wanted to call them the Q Dogs or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, yeah, Jay, he's an Omega, the Q Dogs. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Right. But Jay was like, you know, that's too, that's too risky. That you know can't, you know, we needed to be commercial. He was the one that pitched to Jay the idea of Sixty Nine Boys. <laughs> Jay and Van took that from that man. And I'm telling you, I'm not telling you what I think. I'm telling you what I know, because I remember the promo pictures that this man had, Steve, had of him in this group. And it said the Q boys Mm -hmm. or something like that. And all he did was change it to 69 boys. Wow. And that's that's why Vandoms call it. (laughs) Wow. That's that's crazy. I mean, I've known... I've known Thrill like we we've kind of had like this kind of fringe relationship for years. I mean, I, I met him in the very beginning of me getting into the industry in like 2004 because he was in he was floating around Tallahassee at the time. I know he spent a lot of time in Orlando, but he was in Tallahassee for a time on radio there. And, you know, he was one of the first people because they uh, I think Clear Channel had a station there at one point and he was on that station. And then they ended up pulling out of the market. And, um, and he just kind of let, me tell, let me tell you. Let me tell you who Van Bryant really is. Van Bryant. Do you remember when they used to have the record store in Gateway Mall? Mm-hmm. Yep. Van worked there. <laughs> he used to sell records. Van would be in the store. He would be the dude in the store with the peach lenses in his in his in his glasses, mm-hmm. and have on the peach polo shirt with the plaid green peach shorts polo shorts like this was his style right like er, i'm talking about this was before long before trick daddy and all these dudes that get credit for that stuff then mm-hmm. has br- always been ahead the, of the, the bright color the bright colored thug yeah, thugs, yeah. yeah. <laughs> on, the, on the real on the real when you talk about a nigga that know how to dress van always had that on lock so like that with the attitude of going to reins Mm-hmm. Yep, and raises and, probably and at that point. Working yeah. in a record store. Yep. Being able to write. Mm-hmm. It had to be a star. You couldn't tell that nigga shit. <laughs> no. No, he, do you, you remember LeKay? No, I don't. Kevin Burton? You said who? nephew? No, uh uh-uh. Okay. Him and, him and LeKay used to be in a group together. Okay. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. I know I'm rambling because there's a lot that I know. Right, 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 right. <laughs> no, no, no. This is, this is good stuff, man. I mean, like, you got to keep in mind, like, 
you got to keep in mind, I'm 33 now, so my demo is kind of like fits right in the middle of all of it. Like we're sitting around, like while you guys are doing this, we're looking up to you. Like I've always told the stories. Like chances are you probably know my sister Carla because she dated Little Bodie, so she used to be around all the time. She also dated Natron Means for a while, so you know what I'm saying. My sister was around, you know, when all of this stuff was going on. So you know, yeah, I remember coming to your house. <laughs> She worked at Regency for a while. A lot of people obviously know her because she worked at uh, she worked at Hooters during the nineties um, yeah. down at the downtown uh, at the downtown Hooters. So she worked there for a long time. So she just kind of was always around. And I say all that to say that's where I kind of get my spark from. I'm ten years old. Now, now let's let's be real, dude, because you got you got an attitude, and the reason I know you got an attitude <laughs> is because your sister's got attitude. I your sister up. From Hooters one night, <laughs> and she got fired. Yep, only to get hired back. But yeah, listen, listen, dude, she was in there fighting the people. I had to pull her out of there. Are you talking about the date where she picked up the keg and hit the girl over the head with it? Yeah, last check, and she didn't tell me what she was doing. She, I just thought she was going in to get the check and come out. Right, man. But yeah. you know, you know, they hired her back. but i say i'll say all that to say like she she sparks my she sparks my drive into the industry because she put me around people i i want to say it's like 95 or 96 when was the um when was the homecoming tour for new edition was it 95 or 96 i don't remember all i know is they got beat up (laughs) (laughs) but they did the show they did the show at jazzco and um And so I, um, my sister, like I think they did some some sort of uh, some sort of early morning check or something like that. You know, just kind of prepping for the show later on that evening. And they all pulled up in a limousines and all this kind of stuff. It was one of the few times because we all know that they didn't get along with each other. But it was one of the few times that everybody showed up and everybody showed up on time. And yeah, this early, this was all prior to Mr. Telephone Man and Bobby Brown. <laughs> yeah. So they're all getting out of the they're all getting out of the um, they're all getting out of the limousines and all that kind of stuff. And the next thing you know, one of them dropped the suitcase, and I I jumped to pick it up, and I'm only ten years old. I don't know any better, you know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. one of the other one of the other promoters or whatever started yelling at me, and then one of them looked straight up and was like, "Nah, let little man carry it in." <laughs> so I got it carried is. it in. They slipped me fifty dollars. It was like like, and for me, I was like, "Wow!" Like you know, like fifty dollars in 1995 or whatever it was. Like that's a big deal. Like you know what I'm saying? So. Yeah. But yeah, like that, it was stuff like that, that that my sister, because of who she was around, kind of made me around. Like, I mean, like, and I've said this before on other podcasts, like meeting bigger rankings for the first time, like, you know what I'm saying? Like now it's just like, oh, that's Billy. Like, you know what I'm saying? But I mean, like, I can't front like, you know, 1994, 95, 96, I see bigger rankings. It's like, oh, because, you know, my sister used to bring home these tapes from the club because they were recording and they sell the tapes. She bring home these tapes from the club 
and like I just hear this voice and people cheering and you know all this kind of stuff and I just like you know what I'm saying you want to be like these guys you know like yeah. so it's just crazy yeah. because you know why you guys legends. are why you guys are doing it and you you're not looking at yourselves like we're finna be legends for to these 10 11 12 13 14 year olds but you are you know what I'm saying I mean you know my, my biggest thing I think the thing that I regret the most is that um I didn't stretch out right. like a lot of people did don't get me wrong I have extensive ties I had extensive ties with with little John and camp in, in, in Atlanta. I was around the black market being me um, very early days. I'm talking about when they had the capers, which is Rashida, um, KP. Um, they were a female rap group version of TLC. Mm-hmm. On top of that, they had Bone Crusher in a group called Lyrical Giants. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Little John and uh, what's the DJ's name? Emperor DJ Cersei, they had a radio show. I remember going to Atlanta and taking my keyboard and the keyboard getting stolen. But the beauty of it was that same particular weekend that I went there, um, Little John was asking me about, you know, they had an ASR of their own. He was asking me how to use it. That's really how me and him kind of hit it off. Mm -hmm. And um, I did a commercial for their radio show and I used this particular synth that he went on to use in Yeah for Usher. Okay. <laughs> and then on top of that, like, Lil John used to always pick my brain because he knew I was from Jacksonville. He'd be like, you know, how does CC do this? How does, like, because as a DJ, you know, Lil John is originally from California. Mm-hmm. As a DJ in Atlanta, he would ride out at 12 o'clock on nothing but Southern Booty Shake Miami 95 South music. Right. So he would ask me questions about it. Well, now in hindsight, I understand he was picking my brain and figuring out, formulating mentally his idea for crunk music, which is just repetitive chants over Miami bass type music that mm-hmm. we know is Miami bass, right. but just in a more aggressive fashion. Mm-hmm. Now, had I known what he was doing at the time, I probably would have been. Took it and ran involved. with it yourself. <laughs> well, I mean, I probably would have been involved because, like, even the term crunk, um, I remember at the time, um, me letting him hear Shout Outs demo. Mm-hmm. First of all, I'm talking about from the Escaping the Crab Pot album. We had a song in there called Get Crunk. Mm-hmm. And the only people that were talking about getting crunk at that time that I knew of was Shout Out and Pastor Troy. Right. So even the idea that he took that that title and made it his, like that this is called crunk music. Man, that's that word and that stuff was floating around like like the word off the chain. If I told you I made off the chain music, you'd be like, well, you can't even claim that you came up with the term off the chain. Right. 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 right, right. So that's how I look at when I hear Lil John say crunk music. Right. Because, I mean, Lil Scrappy would be running around at the time. He was a little bad behind boy that skipped school and, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, wanted to rap. (laughs) Uh, You know, like I'm around them at this time mm-hmm. and this is like you gotta think this is prior to Lil John and the East Side Boys this is when Outkast and TLC were just killing 98 98 yeah, yeah. yeah. Freaknik was still going on <laughs> 112 was a spot Frozen Paradise 
the gentleman's club was still open. I think you know? the pavilion at Jasco is still open at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I think it absolutely. closed. It closed. The pavilion at Jazz Club closed. I want to say 2002. It closed right before I had a chance to go to it. <laughs> you know, the, the, the thing about that is, I think the greatest move he ever made was to the the the, the pavilion, the big place that he had off um, South Side. Off, yeah, yeah, off University. University yeah. That was that. That's where we opened up for Biggie. That's where we did our first show. Yeah, and um, ironically, we had we had a me and eighty had performed the song with the singer. You know, Clarence Cobb. Mm-hmm. Yep. Clarence sung live on that show with us <laughs> so like we were bringing elements and ironically also I have to say on that same show shout out and his group opened up <laughs> before, was, before we get to shout out I, I, I do have to ask you because because I know it's so legendary for my group because we missed it what was it like being at the pavilion at Jazzco because we hear all of these legendary stories about how it it like that place moved the culture forward right is that true or is it or is it just kind of one of those things that people say about it man let me tell you my first time going to the pavilion um was uh a cool runnings night Mm -hmm. it's still jazzco at this point right but the name jazzco has kind of fallen off cool runnings is coming up and i remember being at the club early and they were playing you know general music or whatever mm-hmm. and I remember Bigger going on I remember Bigger picking up the mic and I remember walking past the wall of speakers and uh you know he was doing this whole prom prom thing and Bigger up north side east side massive, you know doing this thing mm-hmm. and like he, he was like he was back spinning this record while he was saying this stuff man and I happened to walk right up near the speaker so you can imagine, like, just the atmosphere. The club is packed. Mm-hmm. Biggest got ten people around him on the set. Mm-hmm. Like at the time, like a lot of people don't even know. I don't think Bigger really DJs. <laughs> He's just a voice. He always has a team of DJs, right. like Kool Aid or somebody that's actually spinning the record. Right. But it's still, it's still the whole reggae vibe there, you know, which is a derivative of hip hop. Right. There's the MC and then that there's the DJ. He, he very and, much so is a dance hall. Chant right. yeah, right. Mm-hmm. It coexists. Right. So he's back spinning this record, and he drops the record, and he goes right in, and it's it's uh, <laughs> what's the name of the group? Uh, Bone Thug and Harmony, first of the month. <laughs> and man, when I tell you the speakers were hitting so hard, it's the first of the month. <laughs> <laughs> on the mic prom prom at the same time I was like whoa <laughs> so I have to say just on the props of you know I had heard the tapes like you mm-hmm. I had even been to smaller clubs and seen the whole Cool Runners vibe right. but it wasn't until that night in that massive club on that venue you gotta figure man we had just had like the whole um uh Black College Week in Jacksonville around that time, mm-hmm. which Levi had brought Wu Tang and me and Josh and my homie Wax and FXL. We were all responsible for driving them dudes from Orlando to Jacksonville 
and all of the hotels were booked up in Jacksonville, so we had to have Wu-Tang, mind you, this is all of Wu-Tang minus Method Man and Old Dirty, I think. Okay. And we had them housed in a hotel in St. Augustine. So every day, we would drive to St. Augustine, pick them up, bring them to Jacksonville for a show, whether it be at Metro Park or at the Pavilion. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. That, that, that is absolutely unbelievable. So I, I kind of want to move things along a little bit. So we obviously we get into the 2000s. At this point, when do you finally get into the, uh, the studio that you're in now? What year does that fall in? So technically, I started doing sessions at my mom's crib probably about, like you said, 95, 96. Um, uh, and again, I had started recording with Ken back in the 80s. Well, mm-hmm. Ken had started in the 90s hiring young producers. He was the first studio owner in Duval mm-hmm. to hire producers at age 18, 19 years old to come in and make beats this was his way of keeping his finger on the pulse of what's happening right so one of the people that he hired first was maurice henderson mo mo better who's over all the sound at potter's house um international church right now okay he was the first person that he hired that's my homie i do sound with him right now at the church so okay if he listening big up to mo mm-hmm. um after that he hired uh kareem kareem went on to do a majority of the stuff that you hear from 95 South, all of the stuff that was on Nutty Professor, Bad Boys soundtrack, right. he did a lot of the mixing and production for that stuff outside of CC. Okay. After that, he hired my homeboy Tango that I told you about, did the talent show with right. uh, Terry Jordan. And you know, I'm sitting back waiting patiently, and I think about 97, he finally hired me. Okay. So I worked there technically from 97 until about. 99 in 99 i started working with this label called elite records and that's when i branched off and said you know i gotta i gotta kind of do my thing i gotta grow on my own and um elite was a big thing man over off the powers mm-hmm. um i remember we did this big compilation and doc winners came through and listened to it and picked three of the artists from the compilation to do come together day and we just knew we made it and we knew we were on top of the world we had a um Vic Damone, <laughs> he's an R&B singer. They call him Crown Vic. Yeah. Uh, my man, Sean Matthew K.O., he did a song on there. Brandy Curry, who did a lot of background vocals for Destiny's Child and stuff like that, was on there. And even uh, Jesse James <laughs> had a song on there called Undefeated. I produced that track for him. And oh, Jesse huh? ran with that. He ran with that track until Kingdom Come. But that's, <laughs> you know, I mean... He, he made the song based on his winning freestyle battles on the radio and then it just turned into another piece but uh, after leaving Elite I went back to TWC I always stayed in touch with Ken mm-hmm. he's always been my mentor and about 2003 he was building a house and wanted to build a studio in his house be close to his family mm-hmm. but he didn't want the building or the lease to go to waste so I took over the lease in 2003 Mm-hmm. And um, I got tight with the, the landlord, and in 2006, I started purchasing the building. Okay. So now All Pro is kind of a it's a studio, but I'm looking at it more of a eventually a museum. 
because so many people have recorded there. I'd really love to get it to that status to where it's like a a memorial to Longmark. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, those things take time. That's just my my wishing and my vision on it. Mm-hmm. You know? Now I I think and now obviously clearly I didn't know that I was I was around you and you were interacting with my sister in the 90s and in the 2000s. I meet you when I come back from Tallahassee um, right. in 2000 and I came back in 2005. Um, I probably meet shout out late 2005, early 2006. This is around the same time that I'm a I'm a, a college rep for Universal. Do you remember when we first met? Because I know it just kind of sort of all runs together. For me, it does, and and the, the irony of it is, is that you know, um, <clears throat> so <laughs> shout out has always been an anomaly in my life. What I mean by that is, I remember being nineteen, twenty, and I'm in clubs, or you know, more or less, probably seventeen, eighteen. I'm in clubs, and he's in the same club, right? And I know he's younger than me. I know he's fifteen, sixteen, right? To the point when they used to have club colors and they would show kids dancing on TV and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like me and Kevin and Karan, we had our routines down. Like we go on TV and be, you know, the cameras always on us because we had routines. Right. But we were more, we were more of the New York style hip hop dancers, you know, not the breaking, mm-hmm. just the you know Big Daddy Kane style of you know right. dancing and. <laughs> people that always broke up the show for us was shut up because him and his homeboys would come whooping and then you know, <laughs> forget what we did I can't even imagine <laughs> shout out whooping at this point in my life. Trust, trust me him and Lil Ron used to kill it but uh, you know shout out, shout out has always had people and so you know I remember meeting you and white boy and and during the whole bungee thing Mm -hmm. and it was like these were people that he had but it seemed like every time I met the person it seemed like like that person that person worked for him Mm -hmm. but ironically that person had their own dreams their own desires their own goals their own businesses right you know so that that was pretty much how I remember meeting you yeah and then finding out that you had new blood Mm-hmm. And then finding out that you had your own thing going on with your own artists, you know. Yeah. So, like, where exactly we met? I want to say it was most likely at the studio. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> and I and I know I probably chances are there's a good chance that I was probably high and or drunk out of my mind and an asshole initially. <laughs> so, like, just because I don't know, let me apologize now for anything I may have said or done to offend you, because Lord knows nah, nah. I, I offended a lot of people earlier. <laughs> you know. You know what it was, man, is that, you know, like even with Ivory and the whole culture that he created as far as uh, clubs and promotions, um, man, we were just hanging out. We were still being connected to the music right? and going to these clubs and going into these shows. So it was either we were, and this was the beauty of it to me, we were either promoting who we were working with or promoting what we were doing at the time or we were fans mm-hmm. 100% there was, there was never no quarrel or argument between the two they just seamlessly flowed together mm-hmm. and now 
10 years later it's like damn I don't feel like a fan anymore right <laughs> I feel like strictly a business owner you know what I'm saying right 100% 100% <laughs> I mean and I think that there are still people that I'm fans I'm fans of I don't really you know I use wrestling terms like mark out I don't I don't think I really mark out for too many people anymore um, mm-hmm. you know there are certain people you know like I mean but when you stood on stage next to I mean legitimate icons in the business like I, I stood on stage next to Bun B like we took selfies together like you know, like, like when, once that happens like no disrespect to Young Jeezy because Young Jeezy is definitely an icon in this business but like once you stand on stage next to Bun B and he wraps his arm around you while he's rapping in the middle of Cartouche and y'all take a picture together on stage it's kind of like when you meet Jeezy it's like yo what's up bro that's the same thing for me so by the time I do a show and my first show with my little cousin is opening up for Biggie by the time we get on, road, on the road with cash money I'm like okay juvenile he hot <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know the rest, of, the rest of y'all is just entourage right exactly like okay BG that's cool on, and all yeah but yeah, then we learn later on that the big tall dude oh he's the man that's slim that's babies but you know right. we learn the individual players and I'm talking about that happened with with us for no limit mm-hmm. cash money mm-hmm. meeting 95 meeting 95 south um you know even on to uh the little John thing, right? You know, we had we had to get deeply involved with the crews to find out who's who. Like a lot of people don't know, BME stands for Black Market Entertainment. Right. A lot of people don't know there's three heads of Black Market. That's Little John, Emperor DJ Cersei, four heads. Sorry, Vince and Rob McDowell. Right. Those other people you probably never hear of, but people in Atlanta know who Vince is. Right. People in Atlanta know that Rob McDowell did Shorty Swing My Way. <laughs> the beat for you, you see what I'm saying? Right, 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 right. People, people in Atlanta know that uh, before Little John was even really producing, that Rob McDowell took on a lot of the production mm-hmm. for that crew. You know, so. And, and that's, I guess that's why that goes back to what I said about Shout Out. Because even though I met you under the, pretend, under the pretense of working for Shout Out, I knew that you had your own thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it, it always turns out that way. And it, it's just a matter of, okay, how does my piece of the puzzle fit with his? Right. Now, you and Shout Out have always had a very, a very strong, strong standing relationship. And we will cover because what I want to do is, obviously, as we get towards the end of the podcast, I kind of want to hit some names and just give you an opportunity to talk about some people because obviously you've been such an influencer and had your hands on so many different people. So there's some people that I'm going to want to hit and shout out, but I also want to kind of get through the timeline a little bit. So there's some stuff that we obviously have to hit. Um, You've been such an influencer. You've been the person that so many people have admired and respected. I'm going to leave it up to you to talk about however much of this you want to talk about, but there's a period of time where you go away what happened? How did that happen? Like, like, cause I think that a lot of people were just shocked and, you know, like I'm kind of speaking around it to uh, provide you the platform to just kind of talk about it in whatever way you feel comfortable as opposed to me disclosing stuff that maybe ain't nobody's damn business to talk about. So can you just kind of talk about based on however you feel comfortable, what happened, how it happened, why and 
you know, uh, like, long story short, long story short, I was incarcerated. Um, I got locked up for what the government calls trafficking. Mm-hmm. And to kind of put it out there in, in layman's terms, um, I had a relative that uh, basically used me and used my building. And in the end, I was caught holding the bag. And it, it it's something that I'm still recuperating from and growing from. And, you know, I guess that's why I have a level of content with things because I know how things could have gone if it wasn't for people like Shout Out. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for people like you and White Boy and my mom and, and people basically holding me down while I was away and, and making sure that the business stayed afloat, you know, um, I could have very easily come home to nothing. I could have very easily come home to starting completely over. And I mean, that would have been years, decades worth of work just gone. Right. And, you know, that's like I said earlier, I'm just now coming to terms and, and formulating the idea of how to make this place into a museum because I've recorded so many people and worked with so many people and had so many celebrities come through and different situations. I mean, everything from David Ruffin Jr. to Alicia Keys and her manager, DJ, uh, you know, Thrill still comes through. I've had uh, Gunplay from Triple C's. I've had Freeway, which, you know, we did the song with Shout Out. Freeway's done about five features at the studio. Right. <laughs> That's because of Big J. Big J brings him there. You know, I'm still working with Jay and with artists from South Carolina, Alabama, you know, so I guess the goal is to pay homage to all the locals that have recorded there, but to also expose the number of people from out of town that have come. Because the thing that made like TJ's, DJ's a beautiful situation was that it wasn't just people from Tallahassee there. You had people from Alabama, Atlanta. Right. <clears throat> and then you had, you had the young people, too, who were going to yeah. school there that would end up being influencers too yeah. exactly exactly so i understand the importance of bridging the gap between the old and the new right. and um you know that that's the endeavor man is to make the the studio a place where you know so i met i met jericho's dad the other day i don't know if you know a local rapper by the name of jericho mm. I, met, I met his dad the other day and his dad was like yeah my son records i'm like yeah i know your son i was one of the first people to record your son you know what i'm saying so right. That's kind of how things go for me. Like now, I'm the, <laughs> no pun intended. What's up, relic? That's my homeboy. I'm the relic now. I'm the I'm the dinosaur bone in the city. <laughs> and like I said, my biggest regret, you know, on top of being incarcerated and going through that situation, is not um, being able to be around during that time period to continue to build on the legacy. You know. Now, when did so, you end up coming home? Uh, I came home. I went away in 2008 and came home 2012. Um, I was facing 10 years. Um, By the grace of God, I I walked away with four and a half. Mm -hmm. And um, I was able to come home and have a business to work out of so that I can pay work release and uh, pro 
probation and all that good stuff, you know. Right, 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 right. <clears throat> but uh, I, at the same time, I was able to, to do my my therapy, which was music, you know. Right. <clears throat> Stay in touch with what was going on. It was a totally different scene <clears throat> when I got home. I was kind of upset when I got home because I'm, I'm talking to you and white boy and Tremaine and shout I'm like who y'all listening to what's popping like what's hot and y'all like you know plies <laughs> I'm like man y'all don't know who J. Cole is y'all don't listen to this Wiz Khalifa so, so the reason I was up on it like that you know shout out to Big Skinny uh, you know the hip hop station in Tallahassee man that dude right there I'm talking about I was incarcerated and every Friday night man I'm listening I'm hearing um Currency and <laughs> big crit, you right. know what I'm saying? Like people that today are are staples in my collection of music, right? And really staples in everybody's now because <laughs> even though people still listen to all of those other people we were listening to in 2012, you yeah. you, you you know who you're. Okay, when I when I want quality music, these are the people I go to. But yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, even you know, like I, uh, like there's a song uh, Kid Cudi's got called uh, Higher. <laughs> and I, I play that song, man, and I, I can remember like it's it's a bad memory because I was incarcerated. But I remember that song made me feel like I wasn't uh, in jail. It made me feel like I was out on the streets, and just the whole vibe of it making me remember. Like <laughs> the funny story is with me being in prison, man. Somehow I was real low key. A lot of people didn't know me. I ran into a couple of people from Jacksonville, and they knew who I was. They knew what I did. They knew, you know, about the studio and everything, and my affiliation with with Cash and Shout Out and Ivory and you. And you know, they knew my people, but nobody really knew how I don't want to say big, but how important I was until one day a Hood magazine or Ozone magazine floated through the prison. And I have like five pictures in there, <laughs> you know, with the locks and wearing the throwback jersey, St. Louis jersey. And it's like, man, and I mean, everybody in the prison, I'm talking about prisoners and guards were like, yo, I heard, I saw, like, what that you? And I'm like, man, let's not like keep that low, bro. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, I ain't trying to blow up the spot. I'm trying to do mine and get the hell on. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mean, it went so far as to, like, you know, of course, everybody everybody in prison is a mastermind. They have a get rich attorney. (laughs) They have a a get rich quick scheme, and they're all innocent. Nobody ever did it. Right. So here I am. They like that in the county, too, by the way. (laughs) Here I am. I actually didn't do it. But I never, I couldn't say it, you know what I'm saying? Because it would just make me seem like everybody else. I'm just here doing my time. Mm-hmm. But then on top of that, man, I got, like, my mom sent me my my college degree while I was in there because I was on the verge of graduating. And they kind of, you know, the program director kind of took some extra credit stuff and was able to give me my, my degree. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that stuff comes in the mail. And, I, you know, I show it to a couple of people and those people go and tell the car, oh, you can't treat him like that. The man got family and degree and, you know, what I'm <laughs> and then the, the officers in my face like, yo, so so you got a degree, huh? What you got a degree in? And I'm um, telling them, yeah, you know, I have a 
have a business. I, you know, I've owned a couple of businesses. I've owned barbershop, salon, have my mortgage broker's degree. I got a multimedia degree. You know what I'm saying? They're like, wow. I actually had guards asking me how to do short sales on properties. <laughs> so it's funny now. At the time, it was kind of like, damn, what do you do? Do you conversate with this officer that obviously ain't in your corner? Right. About business, or do you just like act like you don't know nothing? Right. So I kind of ride the fence. I give them a little bit of information to let them know that I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But I would send them on missions to see how far they go with it before I, you know, okay, do you need to go get this paperwork, this paper? Once you do that, come back and talk to me. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. But yeah. But yeah, I was locked up, man. I was locked up. I was gone for a while, and uh, things got crazy and hectic. But uh, I've been back since 2012. Right. Now, what I want to do, because, because like, sometimes you go in different directions with different podcasts and things like that. I obviously don't want to hold you too terribly long, but I want to hit several people. So I kind of want you to give like kind of a brief summary on some of the people that I name and and just kind of give people an overall sense of how much you've kind of impacted the industry by talking a little bit about your relationships with some people. So I'm just going to hit some of the high points. I'll name off some people. You tell me whatever comes to mind about those particular people. Okay. Gotcha. Young Cash. Young Cash, wow, Joey Cash. <laughs> um, when I think about Joey, I think about Vic. Um, I remember uh, 904 Click. Um, I remember Vic coming to me about some beats. And I remember him telling me about his little brother coming from out of town, coming from college to lay down some songs and his ability to sing and rap. And I remember him just being this quiet, reluctant dude. And, you know, I just feel like. Cash was developed out of the tragedy of Vic. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Right. Like, I feel like everything that man does is to uphold his brother's name. So I have a lot of respect for him. A lot of history, a lot of memories. We run different circles. I actually live on the west side now, but I've always been kind of a south side dude. Mm-hmm. So we've never really been uh, on the same side of town, but we've... You know, we, we got incarcerated around the same time. Mm-hmm. So that was crazy. Um, he got back before me and, you know, he's always maintained, man. I'm sure his brother's proud of him. Okay. Um, Ivory Orr. <laughs> Ivory Orr, wow. Man, I remember meeting Ivory fresh out of UNF from doing the parties over there to jumping into the club scene. And I remember him having the Roxy popping and, me working with his group, The Few, Goat, Script, Dirt, mm-hmm. all them dudes, man, <laughs> working on working on their album and production. See, I have a relationship with Ivory that is musical, that has nothing to do with the fact that he's a promoter or makes money that way. You know, I know Ivory as an artist and as a rapper, CEO. Right. You know, <laughs> so uh, big ups to Ivory, man. Um, ironically, uh, this past year, I did the third installment of his daughter's mixtape. His daughter does a mixtape every year for her birthday, and she chooses the songs, and her and Ivory talk and joke and kid around in between the songs. And, and I don't know, man. I just have, I, what you'll notice, I don't want to stop with you, the process that you have going. 
I did. I connect with people on a on a human level. You know what right. I'm saying? 100%. Even though these people, even though these people are legends and giants, man, I deal with them on a on a mortal level. That I that's just our relationship. You know? Right. And then so, I, I, I always tell everybody like, and, and I've always I always big him up because I'm trying to get him to do another album. Isn't Ivory? Uh, I've always I've always said this about Ivory that Ivory is the greatest rapper in the history of Duval in the last ten years. My personal opinion. <laughs> What are your yeah. feelings on him as a rapper? Like, oh man, um, you know, Ivory, Ivory's like the ludicrous of Jacksonville, man. Like his punchlines and his delivery and his choice of beats, man. That dude is is phenomenal, man. Like realistically, I feel like it, it's like me. For me to own a studio is a gift and a curse. It's a beautiful thing because I can help other people's projects. But if I were strictly a producer, I wouldn't be in this city. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Ivory. If Ivory didn't promote and all he did was rap, he wouldn't be in this city. Mm-hmm. But you got to pay the bills, man. Got mouths to feed. Right. right. He's got a daughter that's going to be an Olympic gymnast. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> that's big money right there. Right. 100%. Yeah. Soldier Boy Swords. Wow. That's Dub. Man, me and Dub go so far back. Dub is probably one of the only people besides Shout Out and a couple of others that I named in the interview that can attest for the fact that I rapped. I remember me and 80 being at uh, 93 at the radio station, 92.7 back in the day when it used to be off Phillips Highway near the Avenues Mall and us freestyling them, explicitly telling us not to curse. And I cursed about three times. <laughs> <laughs> and Sorens was there because he was running with... Uh, with uh, with Jesse James and Life and all those dudes, man, they were just kind of formulating that that little that Jesse James click. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, you know, but Swords, man, I've been working with Swords now since 2004. Mm-hmm. I actually did his first project, which kind of got scrapped. <clears throat> uh, they had production on there by Peyton Bach, which is another major person in the city um, and I just did a track for Swords uh, last week a song that he he laid called We Don't Need Another Prayer in a Song so hopefully you'll hear that on an up and coming album but that's my people man love that brother love his mind if you ever want to see somebody kill a show Swords is that man yeah Swords does have an amazing show and he always has for, for years um yeah. I'm going to hit three guys all at once. I don't even know how strong your relationship with them is. Frank Corleone, Mob Boss, and Nephew. Okay. Um, I've had on and off relationships with them. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the funny, the, the, the dichotomy of Jacksonville is, you know me and I know you, but you're doing your thing and I'm doing my thing. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. like there's a mutual respect but for whatever reason because you're doing your thing so hard and I'm doing my thing so hard it's just we never really connect we never really link up Mm -hmm. so um, you know like you said earlier the song that Shout Out had with Nephew on it um, that's not my first time recording Nephew I probably recorded Nephew three or four times same way with Young Cash I've done beats and recorded them three or four times 
but these same people, they have their mainstays. So it's kind of difficult to get Young Cash to be on a beat that's not an MGZ track. Right, right, 100%. So, same thing with nephew or whoever he's working with. I understand Frank has got a son that is a major producer right now. So, uh, you know, big ups to them, man. I love them dudes. And uh, as far as my boss, man, just a dynamic character, man, larger than life. Um, Every time I was around him or in the same vicinity as him, I was aware of where he was who he was and what he was doing and uh you know he 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 was he is probably just as much an introvert as young cash mm-hmm. that's another situation of a uh, two brothers in the game that have to kind of like live up to each other's standards mm-hmm. so that was kind of my boss and frank's thing and uh you know of course frank you know, God bless Mob, but Frank has carried on the business. And he's doing big things, man. Proud of that dude. Good stuff. I, I gotta ask you about one of the one of the DJs that obviously is a staple in our community. DJ Doctor Doom. Wow, Doom. Tracy. <laughs> Listen, man. I remember I've been married twice. My first marriage. Um when I met my wife she was running with some people, some well-known people in town. And um, those people kind of told her, yo, you need to get with him. That dude right there, you know, he got, you know, he got a source award. Yeah, like somehow my name had got brought up in this pretense that I was like this great producer, you know, <laughs> which, you know, uh, I do my thing, but I ain't never won no source award. I think they were trying to say the Duval Diamond or Ghetto Grammy at the time. Right, but right, somehow right, right. it turned into something else. So, when her and I, when we started kicking it, I remember one of the first shows we went to was a show at UNF, and Doom was doing a live remote there, and we were walking up, and so, you know, I was like, what's up, Doom? He actually on the radio, yo, Kualam, the bomb, all proceeds, like, he, like, blew my name up, and that did not help, because I was trying to tell my wife, like, yo, I do this, but I don't do this, you know, like, it's not like that. Right. And he like ruined he ruined it for me. <laughs> like I think Just I think blew up your whole was, spot, huh? <laughs> I think my ex like was an eternal gold digger at that point. <laughs> but you know, it was it wasn't anything on purpose. It was just he was you know, at the time I guess I was kinda making some noise and you know, he was just showing love, man. And it's funny because <clears throat> We just went to a, a get-together at this pool place where they had some record company reps or whatever. Me and Shout Out walked in together, and he was blasting the mic the same way. So, mm-hmm. love that dude, man. Uh, um, him, his family, his his beautiful wife and kids, man. they really good people, man. Like, There's certain people that you like to see win uh, for the fact that you know that they're going to do the right thing with it. He's one of those people, man. Definitely. This is this is probably one that I know is going to be fairly personal for you, Damon Downer. Damon Downer, wow, wow. <laughs> you know, um, Damon works for me, but the reality of the situation is I work for Damon. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned so much from that dude, man. 
that dude right there, you talk about the most loyal. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, you know I know. <laughs> I'm talking about, man, you know, I, I had the opportunity to meet Saw Money, and I get it. You know, I know what the loyalty thing was about. You know, one of my young one of my young producers that I helped mentor in the game, um, Brains, mm-hmm. was a part of that when I went away. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as much as people talk about so, Saw Money and that whole loyalty thing, man, I'll put Damon Downers on that same mantle. That dude right there, man, I have customers that come in and get CD covers made. That man... He puts the sound effects on all sorts of mixtapes. <laughs> that man, he helps artists get their music uploaded to iTunes. Um, everything from Bluetooth and music to a phone. Like, we don't even make CDs anymore. Right. When a person records a song, I Bluetooth that song back to that person on their phone. Mm-hmm. I learned that from Damon Down and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, like, just keeping me up on technology and keeping me up on business. Like, you know, there's certain people that are, you know, how they say, um, Old Dirty was the heart and soul of, of Wu-Tang. Right. Man, Damon Downing is the heart and soul of all Pro Studio. Everything that I do, I really try to keep in mind, my man, <laughs> the, the blackest white boy I know. <laughs> <laughs> I try to keep in mind, like, how a white boy feel about this? Would he be pissed off about this? Would he be cool with this? Would he rock with this? Right. And sometimes the answer is no. Right. But I know on the business level, you know, he's so black, I got to think corporately. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. A lot of people don't give Damon the credit that I think he deserves. You know, he had, and he's he's even mentioned it on the podcast because he was interviewed on the podcast too. He had some he had some alcohol issues and things like that. All of us did. Like I mean, that's, that, he's not the only one. But you know, just had some Damon, some instances Damon where people were presented. Himself, he don't give himself the credit that he deserves. Right. That's and that's what true. that's all about. Right. You know, I, I remember having conversations with him about the whole D white boy thing, and I'm like, man, don't call yourself a boy. <laughs> call yourself a man. You know, so like he's he's had these. You know, he'll always be D. White Boy, but he's had these, you know, he calls himself the broker, which he, the man makes deals go through, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I used to mess with him, call him D. Whitman. <laughs> 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 but, you know, that doesn't fly over too well because that's, you know, right. the whole connotation of black people and white business owners or whatever. Right. But uh, either way, man, Damon Downers, D. Right. I mean... Even my wife right now, if there's something going on or I'm in trouble, man, she calls white boy. She don't call my mom. She don't call shout out. She call white boy. (laughs) (laughs) That's her. That's her enforcer. You know what I'm saying? She know something going on or something need to be, you know, a message need to be relayed. White boy's the man. Toriano Newkirk. Wow. Shout out. Oh Lord, that's my brother, man. You know, they're, they're <laughs> a lot of people probably remember All Pro Studios when, at the time, it was owned by myself, Al Ross, and Tony White. Um, around the time that I got incarcerated, or before my case really started going to court, they left. They left the business, mm-hmm. which kind of left me solo. Mm-hmm. 
And the only reason that the business survived was because shout out to his wife set up shop in the studio for her tax office. And they became my partners. And that's where the whole uh, 1510 album came about. Like I've always done production and recorded shout out. But that was like a culmination of years of what should have been, you know, from the Escape in the Crab Pot album until that album. So that was my best man at my wedding. Um, that That's my brother, man. Like, you know, we talk about relationships and friendships, man. That dude right here is beyond that. That's my brother. That's that's blood right there. Him and white boy, man. They are... <laughs> Tony was an asshole. And... <laughs> Al was an asshole. Al was an asshole on the business side. Mm-hmm. Tony was an asshole on the music side. Shout out is an asshole on the business side. <laughs> and White Boy is an asshole. So I just traded two dudes for two more dudes. <laughs> they are the exact same people. Right. You know how you know how quick White Boy is to pop off and be mad about something and want to fight. Mm-hmm. Tony was the same way. <laughs> you know how you know how. How stingy shout out can be like I don't want to do business with them. I don't like them Al was the same way. So, you know, the the the, the spirit of all pro has survived with different players but the same and you have me in the middle. Right. Which I'm always business minded, but I love music. I love what I do. Right. So I guess that's why it works, is because there's always this this circle of people involved in all pro that are you know they are part of it they're the heart of it people don't see them on a daily basis but they're there right they mean just as much to the business as I do so yeah it's my family it's my brothers so obviously since this is the established 1984 podcast and god damn it I'm the host New Blood, New Blood Entertainment and Brandon Kobe Jacobs to close this thing out. <laughs> wow. You know, um, my man B, Boss Hog. <laughs> I ain't heard that in a long time. <laughs> I, think I, I think I still have you saved under that. <laughs> wow, B, we've been through a lot, man. Yeah. We've been through a lot. We've grown together. Yeah. I've seen you grow into a man. Mm-hmm. I think you do some major things, man, and I'm I'm proud of you, bro. I, I think the thing that I'm proud of the most is that you didn't let the city hold you, and you didn't let the music thing trap you. Mm-hmm. That 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 means a lot. Um, I love to see people grow, regardless of what their choices are in life. Just as long as you moving forward and you surviving and you living this life, man, I can't tell you how to do it. And I guess that's what makes me a different business owner. When people come in and record a project, you know, like white boy be like, man, that nigga can't rap. Why you recording that? Nigga? You know what I'm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, dude, let the man do his thing. I can't, you know, I can't jump right in on the first two or three songs and, and impose my opinion. Right. You know, my relationship with this artist is not like my relationship with swords. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes time. So, you know, artists get in there, they got four or five songs. Okay, now I know what it is they're trying to do. And then that's where my, I guess, my legacy, my so-called expertise comes in, whether it be actually contributing production or just 
production on vocal arrangements and things like that, even providing features, pulling swords in on a feature of a song or having my wife to sing a hook on a song, you know, um, that's, that's pretty much what I do. And like I said, man, as far as you're concerned, you're the same person. Me and you are the same. You're a visionary. You're a mastermind. You got this thing really, really, really on lock. Even just the conversation about Ivory doing a project, I felt that way. I wanted to say that, you know, but I also know where he's at in life right now. Mm-hmm. And even with Shout Out, want, you know, you're talking about a project with Shout Out. Oh, man, I'd love to do another project with Shout Out. But uh, I need him to be an artist. See, when I work on that's the key. That's what I meant to tell you earlier. If you're going to do a project with Shout Out, he has to 100% be the artist. He cannot be involved in the business. Right. That's the only way it's going to work. Right. So, and it's, like, it's so funny you it's so funny you say that because what we talked about before is is doing a doing something called the Toriano tape, which basically like what I wanted it to do was kind of like be a timeline of musical history, and you know we start with the boom baps, like you know what I'm saying, like you know right, you, right. you know well, hell we can even go farther back to kind of like the '80s beats, like these are the breaks, like and I I really I really want to see records where he takes that flow. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm not caught up in the whole, oh, this is how I rap. This is how people know. No, fuck that. Like, do what's good. If it's dope, let, let's let just do what's dope. So if we could literally do something that is kind of like, you know, like how hip hop was in its early infancy where it was almost like disco. But you know what I'm saying? Like, you do something like that and then you move into the 80s and you get... You know, those, these are the breaks type beats. And you move into the 90s and you get kind of like that boom, boom, ta, boom, 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 ta, boom, 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 ta, boom, 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 ta. And then you bring in the 808s and things like that. And then as you move through it, you're also moving through history and you bring in like, like when you get to a beat that's like late 98, early 2000, then you bring on like swords and you bring on cash on and so forth. And as you move towards the, the late 2000s, early 2010s, then you, you then it makes sense to bring on like a young trap. And, and, oh, and Tokyo, Tokyo Jets, yeah. yeah. Right, like you know what I'm saying? And like literally it just is a timeline. Like this is the, the history of music as presented through Shout Out over the course of... 12, 13 tracks. That was the endeavor of 1510. So even the features, like, really, the the lineage of artists should have been, even on that new rapper song, Shout Out should have been first, Ivory should have been second, Sword should have been third, and Nephew should have been last. Mm -hmm. But that was the endeavor of that song. Now, we had songs on there with, uh, like, Funk Shop, um, I own the block. That's me singing on the on yeah. the last verse of that song. Mm-hmm. So you know, um, but that was that was the idea. Was we were trying to, you know, he had a song called "When a Hustler Falls." So I own the block was kind of like, you know, I fell but I got back up and now I'm here. I own the block. We were really we were really talking about the studio talking about the fact that we own that corner of Maryland Marrero. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and we kind of oversee everything that goes on. Like, I've seen studios open up right up the street and close. Right. Yeah, it's kind of hard to shut down the business that's been there for 10, 15 years. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's not a cocky thing. It's just a, 
I don't own the block because I got guns or because I got money. I own the block because I've been here for a long time and I have respect. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, trust me, what you're talking about, it's gonna happen. I don't know when it's gonna happen. <clears throat> my brother, my brother, shout out, just graduated, man. He got his bachelor's degree, yeah. and so now, you know, he and I are talking about a lot of things as far as the studio and promoting and, and getting things back in order because a lot of things have been dormant. You know, with him going to school and me being remarried and mm-hmm. you know raising kids and you know deaths in the family. My grandmother passed. His grandmother passed. <clears throat> you know, white boy and his family issues, man. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just a culmination of of time and the stars lining up and us being able to commit. You know our energy to this music thing like we used to. Well, I will say this: I I'm very passionate about doing something with with shout out. I'm very passionate about doing something with Ivory, and I told Ivory this on the podcast. I've told shout out this in private, and I'll say it here on this podcast that I don't really view myself as kind of like an A&R. I consider myself to be more of kind of like a curator. Like, I know what sounds good, you know, things like that. And I know kind of like what makes sense. And if and if Shoutout's willing to trust my judgment, then I'd be more than happy to be a part of that project because I'm not really in the industry anymore, except for me doing this podcast. I'm not really in the industry anymore to do, you know, like be a club promoter and be out at 2 o'clock in the morning and that kind of stuff. But I mean, like, obviously, if an event presents itself, I might consider jumping in on it. But I, I want to be involved with influencers. And shout out can be an influencer. Like, obviously, in his own arrogant mind, he considers himself to be an influencer. That's a whole other debate. But um, it, I, I think that um, I think that with a project like like what I, I like to call it the Toriano tape um, in a project like that he could showcase not just himself but show other artists in the city who focus so much on singles that that you can you can make an album cut a single if you just make a project right but that's, that's the problem is that everything's so quick fat like <clears throat> that's why artists are stuck on mixtapes because they don't want to commit the time or commit themselves to a particular style of track mm-hmm. for a long period of time. <clears throat> so, like when you when you purchase, <clears throat> like rappers ain't they, they ain't even buying tracks no more. Mm-hmm. Like people ask me all the time, do you have beats online? No, I can't sell my beats for fifty dollars or twenty five dollars. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, I could I could jump in that arena, but why would I jump on SoundClick where there are a, a hundred other producers? They've already got their set prices. I got to dumb down my prices to kind of compete. But then you can't bring the prices back up. Once they get you cheap, they keep you cheap. Right. So, so yeah, you know, what you're talking about as far as <clears throat> creating uh, a timeline of music, whether it be for Ivory or Shout Out, yeah, that's what music should be. Music should be a representation of a look. <clears throat> Music is simply a chronicle of time. Mm-hmm. Just like a newspaper has a date and a headline, that headline is just a summary of what the story is about. Right. Okay, so when a song on an album is just the words, but they don't sum up what the whole album is about. Mm-hmm. So now we have artists that are creating material just 
recording random songs and then putting it together like it's an album, like it's cohesive, like it works no. with the song prior to it or after it, and it doesn't. Right. So, you know, the obligation of an artist is to chronicle a moment in time. If I can push play on a CD player and you hear a song, if I play Mercy Me, Marvin Gaye, you know that's the 1970s. You know that there's political oppression. You know that people don't have jobs. You know that they're not picking up trash. You know what the theme of the time is, right? Right. Just like it, if you listen to night, if you go into 1994 and you listen to Illmatic, you know it's it's New York City, 1994. Okay, so so Duval artists have this stigma, and that is because we are not quite Atlanta, but not quite Miami. We make music that caters to both of those places, but we can have our own sound. Right. We can have our own identity, but it won't happen because everybody is trying to cater their sound, their music, and their ideas to whatever's happening to the north or south of them. Mm -hmm. What about you? What about your own island? What about your own entity, your own ideas, your own sound? It's so funny. (laughs) It is so funny that you say this because... I don't know. Did you ever hear? And I, I, he hears me say this all the time. I'm going to talk about it again. Young Cash's mixtape, The Vacation. Yes. Greatest collection of his music that he's ever done, in my opinion. I agree. I agree. But, you know, here's the thing. Cash, you know. So here's what happens with artists. At first, you're creating because... You're trying to escape your reality. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to get the paycheck, you want to get the contract, you want to. Then, once you've done it for a certain amount of time, now you're receiving accolades. Now you're living off of it. Mm-hmm. What happens is, is your ambition and your desire to do your best kind of gives way to what's worked for you in the past. Right. So now you're just kind of teeter-tottering between how things like you, you hear these artists, even Thrill talks about how things used to be mm-hmm. as far as bass music. And for a while, it seemed like he was trying to, you know, do gospel rap or even get out of the bass music realm. But then I think he kind of realized, look, this is a realm that you are a master of. Right. Make it work. But make it work to a degree of where the music chronicles a moment in time and that's where Young Cash is winning mm-hmm. right now he's great at chronicling ideas for a particular time period right now that music doesn't doesn't necessarily go backward or forwards it's just in the present right I'd like to see him do more of what you're talking about. I want to see him reach back. I want to see him pull together ideas. You know, I know somebody's got some recordings of Vic's voice. Right. I know, you know, like, just to have his voice on a song and have, come on, man. Not powerful that would be. Shit, just, just talking about business at the beginning of an album. Like, I mean, like, that'd be huge. Like, Cash has has a Forest Hill drive in him. Like, uh, you know, like J. Cole's Forest Hill drive. Like, Cash has one of those in him. And the closest he ever came to it was the Vacation Mixtape. Because 
I don't know if it was just like, I know I'm going to prison. This may be the last thing that I ever get to do, so I'm going to do my best. That's what it was, because that's what it was for me for the 1015. <clears throat> well, shout out. That's some of my best production. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it was time sensitive. Mm-hmm. And it, it hurts me to my heart that the project didn't receive, you know, the attention that it should have. But I get it. Because along with me leaving, I'm also leaving the production and the whole finalization of a project in my brother's hands. And he's like, you know, mind you, at the same time of him trying to finalize that project and put it together, he's holding up the fort for me. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I'm gone. I'm away. So I can't really be upset about any of the decisions that he made. Do I feel like it could have been done better? Yeah. But that's me thinking I'm free and I have the time to do it my way. That That's not the case. That was not the case. We have to do it another way. We have to move on to another project and prove our point. And that's what we do, man. Right. No one, no one project, no one entity, no one interview, no one relationship, no one life defines who we are as a spirit. 100%. Yeah. My Ooh. pastor always says, and I've heard this said a couple of times, we are not uh, a human being having a spiritual experience. We are a spirit having a human experience. Wow. So we need to create as such. Very we need to put our, we need to be able to put our spirit into what we do 100% well, yeah. I can't even say anything else beyond that we could sit here and we could talk uh, we could talk uh, you know for probably another hour but we're about an hour and 41 in Sean I want to thank you so much for taking time out to to just join me on the podcast man I definitely want to get with you again because I there's a there's one idea that I do have there's a couple of episodes that I want to do where and I've, I've talked about doing this I want to get with someone who like yourself and just kind of like go over some really great mixtapes or really great albums so like literally like just spend 45 minutes talking about 1510 or you know us listening to vacation and then getting on a podcast together and just talking about the tracks and why this is good and why this is why this is bad or where he could have taken it and that kind of thing so i'm looking forward to that so we'll definitely talk about something like that in the future but i want to thank you for taking this time out thus far and and, uh taking this time out to really be uh really just you know shoot the shit with me on the podcast man no problem man thank you i'm honored bro i mean i you know i've been watching your cast and and what you're doing for a minute um i kind of knew that you would get to me i wasn't (laughs) sure when. (laughs) i really i really i really wasn't pressing the issue and you know ironically this is at a time that i need it right now because I'm, i'm in a transition i'm in a major transition in life and um you know, sometimes you have to hear yourself um, say what you feel mm-hmm. in order to get solid direction. Right. And believe it or not, you've helped me today, bro. I appreciate that, man. 
Well, for those of you who want to get in contact with me, man, we do have a new email for the podcast. You can hit up the email EST1984podcast at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram for the podcast. It's EST1984podcast. My name is Brandon Kobe Jacobs, and you have been listening to the Estevis1984podcast. Take care.